European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 40, Issue 31. Focus Issue, Interventional Cardiology, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Refining Percutaneous Coronary Intervention, Intracoronary Imaging and Hemodynamics, P2, Y12 Antagonist, and Public Outcomes Reporting. Percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, is a remarkable success story and a lesson to skeptics as well. Although Andreas Grunzik's seminal first procedure went smoothly with an amazing and long-standing result after two balloon inflations, PCI remained a risky and complication-prone procedure initially. Would it not have been for its elegance and vision, PCI would have been abandoned due to the risk of acute occlusions and the high rate of restenosis. But against all odds, step by step, the procedure was improved and refined, thanks to guide wires, stents, antithrombotic medication, secondary prevention, and the experience of operators and centres. Due to the limitations of angiography, which does not visualise the coronary vascular wall where the disease process occurs, intracoronary imaging was developed. This is reviewed in the fast-track contribution, Clinical Use of Intracoronary Imaging, Part 2, Acute Coronary Syndromes, ambiguous coronary angiography findings, and guiding interventional decision-making, an expert consensus document of the European Association of Percutaneous Cardiovascular Interventions, endorsed by the Chinese Society of Cardiology, the Hong Kong Society of Transcatheter Endocardiovascular Therapeutics, HK Stent, and the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand, by Thomas William Johnson and colleagues from the University Hospital Bristol NHS Foundation Trust, in the United Kingdom. The experts discuss the clinical use of intravascular ultrasound, IVUS, optical coherence tomography, OCT, and near-infrared spectroscopy, NIRS, intravascular ultrasound, as a continuation of their part one document. They remind us that invasive imaging facilitates angiographic interpretation and guides treatment in acute coronary syndromes. It further provides diagnostic information in angiographically ambiguous lesions and allows assessment of plaque morphology. This second document focuses on the features of culprit and vulnerable coronary plaques, offers guidance on when to adopt an intracoronary imaging-guided approach, and provides an appraisal of intervascular imaging-derived metrics to define the hemodynamic significance of coronary lesions. The benefit-risk ratio of PCI was further optimised with the introduction of hemodynamic assessment of lesion severity during hyperemia using fractional flow reserve, or FFR, with pressure wires, and recently also with computer tomography. As FFR is time-consuming, non-hyperemic tests, such as the resting instantaneous wave-free ratio, or IFR, have been developed and validated against positron emission tomography. In their article, Diastolic pressure ratio, new approach and validation versus instantaneous wave-free ratio, Nils Johnson and colleagues from the University of Texas Medical School at Houston, USA investigated this further. To test for unique physiological properties of the wave-free period during resting coronary pressure measurements, they compared post-hoc the diastolic pressure ratio and the PDPA, referring to the ratio of the distal coronary pressure to proximal aortic pressure, against IFR in 893 lesions of 833 patients. Mean difference between the diastolic pressure ratio and the IFR was minimal and mirrored the difference of the two IFR repeated immediately. 
Minor variations in the definition of diastolic pressure ratio changed its value by less than 1-2% to over a broad range of the cardiac cycle. A linear transform of PDPA showed a very good diagnostic performance. Post-hoc IFR values were validated against real-time IFR values and matched almost exactly. Thus, diastolic pressure ratio offers numerical equivalency to IFR. Despite different technical approaches for identifying the relevant period of diastole, the agreement between diastolic pressure ratio and instantaneous wave-free ratio, and the insensitivity of diastolic pressure ratio to minor variations in its definition, further confirm numerical equivalency among resting metrics. A major breakthrough for the success of PCI was the introduction of dual platelet inhibitors, or DAPT, with one antagonizing the P2Y12 receptor plus aspirin. While ticlopidine was effective but had safety issues, clopidogrel became the standard for many years but had to be metabolized and was thus ineffective in some patients, a problem that more potent molecules such as prasugrel and ticagrelor do not share. This led to the question whether these novel P2Y12 receptor antagonists would suffice without aspirin. In their fast-track contribution, impact of long-term ticagrelor monotherapy following one-month dual antiplatelet therapy in patients who underwent complex percutaneous coronary intervention, insights from the Global Leaders Trial, Patrick Serres and colleagues from the Imperial College in London, United Kingdom, evaluate the impact of 23 months ticagrelor monotherapy following one-month DAPT versus 12 months aspirin monotherapy following 12 months DAPT after complex PCI. Among 15,450 patients enrolled in the LEADER trial, 4,570 who underwent complex PCI had a higher risk of ischemic and bleeding events, but the ticagrelor monotherapy reduced the risk of the primary endpoint by 36%, but not in those with non-complex PCI. The risk of Bark type 3 or 5 bleeding was comparable, resulting in a 20% risk reduction in NACE. Thus, ticagrelor monotherapy after one month DAPT appears to provide benefits for patients with complex PCI. This sub-analysis of an overall neutral trial is critically discussed in a thoughtful editorial by Cindy Grines from the William Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, USA. A third important development has been increasingly refined stents that eventually, with drug coating, massively reduce restenosis. Whether drug-eluting stents with bioabsorbable polymer are superior to those with permanent polymers has remained an issue. In their article, Clinical and Angiographic Outcomes of Bioabsorbable versus Permanent Polymer Drug-Eluting Stents in Sweden, a report from the Swedish Coronary Angioplasty Registry, SCAR, Sergio Bukhari from the Uppsala Clinical Research Centre in Sweden analysed their use and outcomes in Sweden after stratification of a total of 16,504 and 79,106 stents respectively. Restenosis at two years was 1.2% and 1.4% in bioabsorbable and permanent polymer drug-eluting stent groups respectively, and stent thrombosis rates 0.5 and 0.7% respectively. The adjusted hazard for restenosis and stent thrombosis did not differ between groups, Summary, there was no difference in adjusted all-cause death and myocardial infarction. Thus, in real-world patients, PCI with bioabsorbable polymer drug-eluting stents was not associated with clinical benefit over permanent polymer drug-eluting stents. 
These provocative findings are put into context in an editorial by Stefan Windiker from the University Hospital Bern in Switzerland. Quality control of outcome of PCI should be standard in any institution. In some countries, such as the United Kingdom and the United States, public reporting is mandatory. However, public reporting of healthcare outcomes is controversial as the avoidance of spiral may limit its effectiveness to improve quality. In their article, the association between the public reporting of individual operator outcomes with patient profiles, procedural management and mortality after percutaneous coronary intervention, an observational study from the Pan-London PCI-BCIS registry using an interrupted time series analysis. Krishna Raj Sinhi Rathod et al. from Bart's Health NHS Trust London, United Kingdom, investigated whether the introduction of an individual operator-specific outcome reporting after PCI was associated with a change in patient risk factor profiles, procedural management or 30-day mortality outcomes in 123,780 consecutive PCI procedures from the Pan-London PCI registry. Patients treated after public reporting was introduced were older and suffering from more complex cases. Despite this, reported in-hospital MACE rates were slightly lower after the introduction of public reporting, i.e. 2.3% versus 2.7%, and there was even evidence of a 37% reduction in 30-day mortality after the introduction of public reporting. Thus, public reporting appears to be associated with improved outcomes of PCI, with no evidence of risk-adverse behaviour. These surprising results are further discussed in a balanced editorial by Spencer King from the St. Joseph's Health System in Atlanta in the USA. Identification and management of patients at high bleeding risk undergoing PCI is of major importance. But a lack of standardization in defining this population limits trial design, data interpretation and clinical decision making. The issue also contains a current opinion article entitled Defining High Bleeding Risk in Patients Undergoing Percutaneous Coronary Intervention, a consensus document from the Academic Research Consortium, ARC, for High Bleeding Risk, by Philip Orban and colleagues from Latour Hospital, Geneva, Switzerland. A consensus definition of high bleeding risk patients was developed based on a review of the available evidence in an intent to provide consistency for clinical trials and complement clinical decision-making and regulatory review. This consensus document represents the first pragmatic approach to a consistent definition of high bleeding risk in clinical trials, evaluating safety and effectiveness of device and drug regimens for patients undergoing PCI. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.